millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Last Week in Brexit is brought to you by Pearson Solicitors and Financial Advisors, helping businesses and families for over 100 years. And Manchester Chamber of Commerce. Connect, communicate, create. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast for Brexiteers and Remainers alike. I'm Jonathan Beardmore. With our 52% approval rating, myself, Christian Spence and Alex Davis will guide you through the choppy waters of Brexit. On today's podcast... It's been six months since the UK decided to leave the European Union. In that time, we've had a new Prime Minister, an official opposition that has descended into chaos, and a business community, the first time in a generation dealing with real political polarisation. Long gone are the days of boring middle ground consensus. Is business finally getting its appetite back for politics? Why don't we start with you, Christian? Just tell me a little bit about the Chambers and how you approached the campaign initially. I think for us it was about really, you know, for the first time in a generation we've got a big, not necessarily kind of life or death, but a colossal uh, impact in politics coming for the first time in a very long time. So the the challenge for us, you know, Cameron finally announced um, back, I guess, in January last year that the referendum was confirmed, we got the date for June, the Chamber now needs to take a position. And the challenge for us in all of that is actually the Chamber's position has to be that of its members. Mm -hmm. So we, you know, the Chamber didn't stand and still doesn't stand on one one side or the other of the debate. Um, but businesses' views within all that are hugely varied. Everything from big global multinationals for whom you know, international trade and access to international markets and Europe particularly is really important, right down to your small sole trader SMEs who potentially feel a bit blunted by the way EU regulation works. So everything from one side to the other for us, and that's been kind of the, both the joy and the battle um, of weaving through all this for the last year. And just from your point of view, Alex, have you seen any patterns or... Have you heard anything from the people in the chambers out talking to business about differences in opinions between, say, large businesses and small businesses? Um, I wouldn't say so, in, uh, particularly in terms of differences. I think maybe SMEs have more of an appetite for information than the large companies do. But I think one of the things which uh, economists certainly and, and the media tends to underestimate is just how pragmatic businesses are. Um, they're really, at this point, just looking for us to kind of cut through all the noise, and, and there's a lot of it, and give them the information and the signals that they need to plan. Excellent. Well, of course, the $60 billion question, what have you been able to decipher so far? So far, it's, it's really been, we've got to stay on the, on the big picture uh, and allow the smaller details to kind of come through later. So I think a lot of the, a lot of the work we did in those six months running up to the referendum um, was much more about, actually, at the very top level, what does the EU do? Because I think there's a huge, there was a big knowledge gap 
uh, I think not only in the public but within business and actually within politicians' minds and that's becoming an increasing challenge as we ask the politicians to actually start to work all of this out that they don't actually necessarily know what the status quo looks like uh, in any level of detail. So for us actually, you know, from starting from the beginning, what is the EU? What does it do? You're all terribly... That's a really good point actually because as a layman watching the campaign, I've got two sides, one of them telling me the EU does not very much and Parliament is sovereign and the rest of it. And then we've got the Brexit vote, which tells us that we've got 10 years until we unravel all of the legislation from Europe. So from your point of view, which one is it? Uh, as always in these things, there's a middle ground. Um, and I think, you know, the, the whole challenge, I think, in that campaigning period, um, you know, once everything kicked off early last year right through to June, was that actually the, all the messages coming through were from the far opposing sides of the spectrum. You know, mm. there was the, the Leave side said basically the EU is the best thing that's ever happened. Everything, whilst not perfect, is broadly great and we're able to control it. Leave's view was the EU is an absolute basket case. It's an economic disaster. Why would we want to shackle ourselves to something like this? Um, I said, as always, the real truth lies somewhere in the middle uh, of all that. So, yes, I mean, I think some of the early things we did in the, in the beginning of the campaign is kind of the, what does the EU do for you? I mean, mm. actually, where is it involved? Because a lot of the pushback we've had from businesses is, we can't leave because the EU guarantees X. And it's like, well, certainly X is guaranteed, but it's not actually guaranteed by the EU. Uh, uh, and so there's, there's all of that to entangle. So, Give me a, a quick example of that. I think some of this stuff, I mean, some people have talked about things like Erasmus programmes, some people have talked about things... So what is an Erasmus programme? So Erasmus is a European scheme which allows uh, students, university students particularly, to move, move freely around and study in, uh, in different parts of, uh, of Europe. Um, it's certainly mostly administered by the EU, but it's open to countries who are not members of the EU. And you see this repeatedly across a lot of programmes. So Horizon 2020 is a relatively high-profile uh, research, development and investment programme. Um, that's again notionally administered by the EU but it's open to lots of countries even those not actually in Europe so Israel is a very big participator in Horizon 2020 ah. so the UK leaving the EU doesn't necessarily mean you move away from some of those programmes but it does mean you move away from you know the key pillars of the EU um, around things like single market, around customs union and customs cooperation but of course when you start into those topics actually you very quickly get dragged into a very devilish level of detail. Well, yes, I mean, that's a good point. By leaving the EU, are these things which aren't necessarily guaranteed by the EU, almost by definition guaranteed by the EU, because, of course, that's how they were originally written, that's how they were originally set up? Um, I, I think potentially, yeah. As Christian said, it, early on in the campaigns, it was kind of, everyone was of the opinion that we were just going to fall out and lose all these things, and it, it quickly became obvious, once you read into it, that these things are available to countries outside the EU um, and so the issue now becomes that we're kind of stepping back and it feels like we're almost resetting because this has kind of never happened before um, a country certainly of our size has never backed out and so it's not quite clear whether we have to step out and then step back in or whether we, we can just retrieve our membership mm. of these things. How much similarity is there going to be between what the UK is about to do now and what happened previously with Greenland? Greenland. Um, broadly, I think almost none. It's a big challenge. I mean, first of all, totally different economies, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and Greenland's very big issue at that stage was around uh, fishing rights uh, because you know it's a, a colossal part of their economy. But also, that wasn't really the EU as we see it today. That was before the Lisbon Treaty introduced all of its latest reforms. It was before etc. Uh, etc. Et um, so actually, it was a very different beast. 
You know, so it's, uh, did Greenland leave a far less integrated EU than the EU that we're leaving? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the EU has made big steps forward in terms of particularly economic integration. Um, you know, the last big stage of that was the what we call the Lisbon Treaty uh, back in 2009, which sort of sets the sets the block on a on a stronger path towards continued integration. So. Yeah, and I think that's one of the challenges when we look back and people talk about, well, you know, the things that happened in the 1973 when we first joined and, you know, the, the, the big discussions that were particularly tearing, I think, actually both Labour and the Conservatives apart in the 1980s is the beast that exists today doesn't really look very similar to the beast that existed back then and you need to make sure you're looking at it through the right lens. Well, OK, talking about the beast, let's go back to the, reg- to the regulatory issue. There is going to be the repeal bill how big is this repeal bill and will it reflect the enormity of the task in hand? It's it's going to be big. We've not seen it yet. Uh, we expect it will be announced in the Queen's speech um, later this year. It's going to be colossal. I mean, in many ways, it's, it's horrendously badly named because it'll repeal one thing, the 1972 European Communities Act, which is the, uh, which is the law that was passed back then and has been amended since. And it, that's the bit that essentially gives... EU regulatory um, controls supremacy in UK law. That's mm. that's what that's there for. So that'll have to be repealed for us to leave. The bigger challenge is how you get the thousands of laws and tens of thousands of regulations which are embedded across the EU out onto our own statute books. Now that's a that's kind of a colossal administrative challenge in and of itself. I think from the regulatory side, what a lot of people miss is a lot of those regulations can't just be cut and pasted because those regulations will point to bodies in the EU which we will no longer be part of. Well, I guess that was my next point. Is this not just a huge photocopying exercise? Not... Go on, Alex. Well, I I, I don't think it is, and I don't think we quite understand the scale of the the problem yet. I mean, I I think it... I agree that it's badly named. I think the whole point of the repeal bill is that we copyright all of these things over and then we can then take a lot of time to kind of unravel and see which bits we want to keep and which bits we don't want to keep. But at this point, I don't think it's quite clear how long it will take just to get those things written into our law. So it's kind of that first stage, which might take, I, I don't know, could that, could that take 10 years before we can even start to unravel it? I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, government certainly won't want it to take that long. Um, I, said that, I mean, just a bit more on the point earlier, I think the challenge here is, because people have said, look, all you're doing is just lifting and, and dropping. That's nice and straightforward. But of course, the regulations um, around, I don't know, chemical uh, regulation compliance will point to a regulatory body that sits within the EU structure. Once we're outside of the EU, you can't use that as the body which regulates and decides those things. That will have to happen in the UK, which means you don't have to just rewrite the regulations, get them transposed into EU law. You actually have to set up the institutions, populate them, get all the staff in place, and only then are they in a position to, to look over the jurisdiction aspect. So I think this is where the, you know, the Leave campaign have... In, in many ways in this kind of thing been a bit simplistic that you can just cut the ties burn the boats and sail away um, that's not to say that leaving the EU is not possible um, that's not to say that there may not be advantages and disadvantages in doing so but it's not just a we cut the umbilical cord and off we float yeah, it's a weird juxtaposition that the Leave, Leave campaign find themselves in because on the one hand they've almost been proved correct that the EU is running a lot more of the UK government than we initially thought, but also they completely underestimated the efforts which is going to take to unravel the whole thing. I think that's an interesting point, and it, it happens quite a lot in politics, and it's something which I always like to pick up on, pick up on, is that the people on one side are using the arguments against the thing that are the same arguments the people on the other <laughs> yeah. side are using for the thing. Um, so 
you know, the people arguing that we shouldn't do this because it's just going to be such a, a massive capacity drain and it's going to be such a, a massive, di massively dis difficult task. People on the other side are saying, well, that's kind of why we need to do it because we don't have control of all this stuff anymore. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, not that we know yet because, of course, the Brexit department isn't fully populated. The Department of Trade isn't fully populated. What kind of size do you think these departments are going to reach? What kind of resource are we going to need just to set up the additional resources we need to leave the EU? I, the, the big challenge in that is it kind of depends what leave looks like and actually we, that's one of the big, the big unanswered questions in all of this um, I think if you spoke to everyone from the leave campaign you got slightly different answers as to what leave looked like, mm -hmm. is it single market is it customs union, is it cooperation in a variety of different research systems depending on what that looks like will depend on how many people on this side of the channel in the UK you're going to need to look after that. So certainly Brexit departments, you said, is, is recruiting furiously at the moment to try and get some expertise. Um, international trade departments, same thing, because of the UK, we've not negotiated a trade deal since the 70s, since we joined, um, since we joined the European community then. So we don't have any of that expertise sat lying around. Mm. So government's furiously trying to get hold of that. In terms of what else you need, well, I said it depends what we get. So if we find ourselves in, you know, outside the single market, which looks almost certain now from what Theresa May said, outside the customs union and with no customs kind of cooperation or compliance, then essentially you're looking at a position where every truck that leaves the UK to go to the continent needs inspecting and the documents need producing. In which case, not only will business itself have to scale up to deal with that, that load, but actually our our border staff and our customs staff will also have to scale up. So, you know, there's the usual parallel that's given in this is you know, Germany already employs about 10 times the number of customs staff that, that the UK right? does. Already. In a worst case scenario, you're looking that the amount of documentation and customs checks that the UK needs to perform might double. Um, so there is potentially a colossal recruitment drive that would need to be done just to get systems and people in place to allow it all to happen. Now, just for simplicity, it, is that because most of the goods and imports come through the EU before being distributed to the UK? I think it certainly can be. So I think we, one of the big things is, yes, yeah, you know, big global shipments will often come via Rotterdam is one big example of big disputes on exactly what that share is and what that looks like. Uh, but certainly you might see then a lot of the customs procedures handled on the Rotterdam side first, and then they come without any issue into the UK as part of the single market. So there are all those sort of things. Again, it, all, it all comes down to this, what does leave look like? Until you know what it is you're... A, aiming for, which I think Theresa May has clarified to at least mm -hmm. some extent recently, but then B, what we get, because I think, you know, there's a there's still this big challenge that we talk about. These are the things we want, and forgetting that this is a negotiation with us on one side of the table and 27 countries on the other. Mm -hmm. uh, so what we want may not necessarily be what we get, and when we find out what we get, then we can work out what we're going to need. Well, that's an interesting point, and look, we'll just touch on this briefly because this is going to be a subject of a whole other podcast what are the options for the UK? Um, it, it's it's kind of difficult to say. I mean, if, if you go if you go back and it, back earlier in the campaign, we kind of had this nice set of options where we had the Norway option, the Switzerland option, um, you know, very various other other options that we could have taken, and it's it they've kind of all been shot down one by one. Um, I, I think it was a speech that Theresa May made at the end of last year where it kind of seemed like she ruled out every single one of these options. Mm. Um, but we have kind of got the, the broad objectives laid out, but it, it certainly doesn't seem like we're going to be going down any one of those clearly defined paths. Um, but if we go back to something like the Norway option, there's this, this entity called the European Economic Area, which all countries in the EU are members of, but it's also got countries like Norway and Switzerland and Iceland mm -hmm. in, involved as well. 
Um, and that's potentially a way where we can technically get ourselves out of the EU, but we would maintain our membership of the single market, for example. Um, so that's one way. Uh, I mean, Christian said before it's all about what we get, but it's also about how we get to what we get. So it, it depends on how many steps we, we choose to take to get to the, the ultimate objective, if you see what I mean. So if we were, for example, to step through the EEA, it potentially takes a lot of that workload off of us in the first instance. Um, but in terms of what options are available, it seems, well, Theresa May said that we're coming out of the single market, definitely. Um, we definitely want some sort of customs cooperation to avoid the issues that Christians were just talking about. Um, but what's not clear at the minute is how long we're prepared to take to make those things happen and, and how many steps are going to be involved in between. From a Chamber's point of view, is there a position that you are lobbying for for a type of Brexit? I think the big one, actually we're in the process of doing exactly this at the moment, so we're, we're, we're going through a lot of work with members, essentially coming back off Theresa May's Lancaster House speech in January, mm -hmm. she laid out her 12-point plan for Brexit, uh, and we're kind of responding to those now and developing firm position statements. I think the overarching sort of call from members in all of that is, is not surprisingly stability. I mean, that's the one thing business is love fundamentally. The easier and smoother the world is, the, the easier everything is. Um, but is I think also is don't rush this unduly. You know, a good outcome is better than uh, is better than a fast outcome. Now that's got some political challenges. Mm. You know, Theresa May in her speech said she believes that um, no deal is better than a bad deal. I'm not sure that's right. Okay. Um, and I'm not sure businesses would support her fully on that. I think the, there's a bit of a nuance in there. It's a very good negotiating stance, and in many ways, you're not going into it. You nobody goes into a negotiation without having the big red button available because yeah. you have no power. Um, if you know that you're going to have to get something, the other side will trounce you. So I think from a sheer, you know, ideological, um, you know, business-led deal-making position, to be able to say I am prepared to walk away, no matter what you give me that's a very good strong hand. The point is actually falling out with no deal would be a colossal change to the UK economy overnight uh, and businesses are looking to avoid that. What do you think the goals are for the EU? And are the goals of the EU different to the goals of the European Commission? I think this is where this is really interesting. Because um, lots of people have said, you know, the, the obvious position for the EU here is to protect itself. And I think, you know, some of the, some of the words we've heard from, from, the, from the presidents, the variety of presidents across the EU, has been that, you know, the, the EU 27 will unite, they will form a single position, they want to protect the interests of the EU as a single bloc. Uh, and to do that, they've got to, in some way, punish the UK. If the UK gets a really easy ride, um, and can be seen to actually walk away from this, essentially, if you like, you know, take its toys and the pram and, and go home, but still keep all the best bits, still keep all the easy stuff, then actually that's a huge encouragement to other countries who are thinking about where their future lies, and particularly, you know, the rise of, you know, Marine Le Pen in France and mm. Gearbuilders of the Netherlands. Does that send a signal that actually, um, you know, if you can get away very lightly, then why wouldn't you go? I think, though, there's a flip side to that, is that, I think the danger we talked about, just Alex touched on it earlier, is actually if the EU is seen to be the big evil oppressor that gives <laughs> Britain a big kick in this process, that potentially strengthens Marine Le Pen and Gitvils yeah. by saying, look, it is the big evil body we've been telling you about. Um, so I think the EU is going to have a hard, line in, a hard time in getting that kind of middle ground where, yes, undoubtedly the deal that he struck will be, this is a big generalisation, worse than the current position. In you know, a number of different ways, because 
the EU can't possibly allow us to exit and be, you know, essentially have access to all the good bits but none of the bad bits. Now, um, let's just talk about the different bits a second because uh, am I right in interpreting this as saying all the good bits are the economic bits and the bad bits are basically you're going to have to learn power politics and our political changes? Or is that, again, too simplistic? Um, I, I think that's too simplistic. I think this is a point that I've made before that... It, it depends what your viewpoint is as to what the good parts and the bad parts are. So I could spin that round, couldn't I, and say the good parts are the uh, political progressiveness or whatever it is, and the bad parts are European competition law. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I'd put it as so, so. The EU says to us that we we can't keep the good bits and get rid of the bad bits. But to me, that's the EU admitting that there are bad bits. <laughs> and it seems to me that the bits which the Leave campaign particularly wanted to get rid of, the things like the the free movement of people. Um, and so if the EU is saying, well, you we want to get rid of one of the bad bits, that to them is obviously not a bad bit. And so it's a, it's a bit of a, a weird position. I think the good points I think everyone can pretty much agree on are the single market and the kind of the trade liberation uh, that, that's happened throughout the EU. But at the same time, that's happened sort of because of the centralisation of the, the decision making. So it's kind of a, another kind of double edged sword, but there's not really a... A specific answer. Now that answer. has to be a, a situation where you guys are getting one message from businesses, which is free movement of people is fantastic, and then that is the polar opposite to say what we are led to believe the majority of Brexit voters voted for. Yeah, it's it's massively complex. Um, I, th I think one of the things we can highlight this today is, is what this has done to Labour and what happened this morning actually with the uh, the Cope and by election. Mm. And that Labour's kind of in a, a completely impossible position, for example, that kind of demonstrates how this has affected politics more generally. Um, because almost all Labour MPs voted Remain, almost most of Labour constituencies voted Leave overall, but polls show that individually most Labour voters voted Remain. And so they kind of have, have no position on this, and it's, it's very difficult for them to come up with one. Um, and that's kind of reflective of how this has affected politics more generally, in that it's, it's now no longer a split between... Labour, UKIP, Conservative, Lib Dem, or whatever, but it's a split within those groups between Leave and Remain now as well. And that's right. I think the you know the what's really interesting in all this, if you kind of take the longer term political view on all of this, is I mean for the first time certainly in my lifetime, the Conservatives look united on Europe. I mean that's you know with the bar exception, Ken, we you know, except Ken Clark, but you know, we've <laughs> always known where Ken Clark's views are, as it were. So I think that it's been interesting the way it's affected that. I think on free movement, we've been trying to drill down in in what when companies tell us, yeah, you know, the free movement of labour is really important to them, access to you know, particularly skilled, but you're here in particular sectors that relatively unskilled labour as well, and the easy access to that is is important to them. I, if you kind of force people into that conversation a bit more detail and say, look, is it free movement of people from the EU that is important to you? Or is it easy, bureaucratic, free access to labour from overseas? Then actually you tend to find that more people will agree with that latter point. So it's not necessarily the free movement concept. Certainly there are benefits. Um, there are ways in which people can, of course, if you, you, know, if you work in a multinational firm, you can move around offices very easily without any of the paperwork um, that historically there was. But actual, you know, normal migration policy of countries can deal with that sort of thing, your temporary movement to other countries. So, again, it's one of those things that it very, it, from the political and the press point of view, it's great that it sits into two very distinct boxes, free movement good or free movement bad, depending on which side you are. Again, the reality and the nuances yeah. just kind of blur all that. I think an interesting point to add to that, and something which, which kind of surprised me, is that we've, we've got members of ours who voted leave, 
because they're pro freedom of movement, but because they're pro freedom of movement from outside the EU, not ah, within it. Ah, okay. And that they find it more difficult to recruit people from outside the EU uh, than from in the EU, and those are the people that they really want. And so they kind of want to see the kind of discrepancy between how easy it is to get people from the EU and outside the EU to be removed, to make it kind of a level playing, playing field for everyone, which was quite a surprising reason to vote leave, I, I guess, when I first heard it. Which is kind of your classic Indian doctor argument. Yeah, exactly, yeah. We didn't actually address this point, so we'll just circle back to it. The European Commission is the organisation who will be representing the EU, but is it getting its position from the 27 member states, or is it purely being driven by... Who is dictating their negotiating position? That's a, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure that anyone is at this point. No, I think, that, yeah, there's still a lot of internal political challenge, I think, within the EU about where that will align. Um, certainly, I think, as you look at things like, you know, so we've got the big French, German, Dutch elections coming up later this year. That's, that leaves a bit of a, a vacuum in that space while those countries are just kind of working out what their own position is. So the, the most obvious change in that is, is if Marine Le Pen wins uh, in France, if Geert Wilders gets, uh, gets a majority in, uh, in the Netherlands, then all of a sudden I think you might see what is I think, a broadly unanimous position on the EU start mm-hmm. to break down. But certainly each country does have its own asks. Um, you know, I think... People have said, you know, will the EU negotiate hard? Will you be able to strike deals? Actually, I can easily see a world in which, you know, the current leaders of, if we kind of say, you know, some of those original countries of the EU, the Western Europe side, so particularly France, Netherlands, Luxembourg, Germany, um, you can imagine, actually, that there will be a much greater sense of pragmatism about, actually, our trade with the UK is important. It's a big, important global, uh, global entity in and of itself. Our historic ties, our security ties, trading ties are all important. And we, whilst we need to go through this negotiation and it's going to be hard, we want a really positive outcome. And we're happy to perhaps trade, do some trade-offs to make that happen. I think as you move to some other countries, you'll get a very different view. So, you know, we know from particularly the, what we call the A8 accession countries, so those countries that joined in... So the... The A8, so the eight countries that joined in 2004, so that's Poland, uh, Czech Republic, Slovakia... There's much more of an importance for them on free movement of people. And if we go to what we call the A2, the, the two most recent joiners, um, Bulgaria and Romania, that's even more the case. So they see actually that free movement of people for their labour force to be able to go and seek you know, the, the, the richer countries of the West has been critical to this. So whilst you know, Angela Merkel, I think, is very rightly, from you know, their negotiating point, been very harsh on the you can't pick and choose your bits of the single market, that's your position you need, I kind of imagine in the realities of negotiation, those bigger Western blocs will be happier to try and find a way through some of that, but there will be countries who will be, who will be less keen for that. If free movement of people is so important to business and so important to the success of an economy... Why is it so important for the other EU countries, for the UK, to retain freedom of movement? I think, well, I, said, I think free movement for the others is often about. I mean, I guess there's a few things, and you know, I think one of the big difficulties in the way the UK and most of our population really looks at the EU is just very, very different from the way people in the people in the on the mainland continent look at it. A um, couple of issues there, I think. I mean, one historically, I think from the UK perspective, we forget, I think, very easily the political tensions to the point of war that have existed amongst those countries very recently. Mm-hmm. Um, we forget that for, you know, for those 10 Eastern, you know, old Eastern Bloc states, um, democracy for them is only a quarter of a century old. 
and that even for some of the southern European states, you know, the, you know, parents and grandparents can remember living under military juntas. Mm. You know, so, so what the EU means to them in terms of you know enabling freedom, in terms of joining the Western world, in terms of opening up their economies and growing, has a very different emotional resonance than it does from you know good old plucky island Britain who hasn't been invaded in a thousand years and we've had a constitutional settlement for most of that. Um, so I think that guides a lot of those differences of opinion. So how important is all of that free movement stuff to a big settled economy that hasn't really had any trouble in centuries? Against what does that mean to companies who, who to countries for whom in living memory the world was very very different? So for them, it's not really a question of commerce; it's a question of um, well, their, their actual existence. Yeah, I think so. You know, the, the, the freedom from the shackles of uh, of the Soviet Union, particularly for some of those for those Eastern states, and and for others, just that you know the you know, frankly you know the peace that has been delivered post World War Two. Um, you know, there will be lots of different arguments across the Leave and Remain spectrum about how much the EU, how big the EU's role was in that, um, and you know, lots of leavers would say actually NATO had a much bigger influence in that than the EU itself. But you know, since those early days in, in 1946, 1947, there has been this drive from you know, those founding blocks, Luxembourg, Netherlands, France, Germany, to do this project. Um, and I think, you know, from the EU commissioner's kind of point of view, so the EU, sorry, um, the EU body's negotiating point of view, that project is still very, very important. Excellent. Well, that was a fairly wide-ranging discussion and a good introduction to Brexit. Hopefully, we're going to be doing this weekly. Uh, if you've got any questions, uh, I guess what's the best way to do it? Tweet it. Have you guys got a Twitter Twitter address? Yeah, you can you can tweet me at uh, GMCC Research, or or you could just email the team at research at gmchamber.co.uk. And if you want to fire off a tweet to Pearsons, it's Pearsons underscore SFB, which is <laughs> Services for Business. Before we go, anything the Chambers of Commerce are up to this week which we should all know in Manchester? I think the big thing we're gearing up to, not particularly locally actually, next Tuesday is the British Chambers of Commerce, so the body that brings together all of the accredited chambers in the UK. It's our big annual conference uh, in London next Tuesday, some big high profile political speakers from both parties. We're going to be looking at, of course, what does the EU and Brexit mean for us over the coming years? Well, they just need to listen to this for that. Absolutely, it's all here. Excellent. All right, well, thanks until next week. Uh, we'll, we'll see you then. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.